My name is Sue Blackmore, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 88. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, son, hey, son! And... We have someone else to join us today, Deborah Hyde. Woo! Hello. Hi. Hello, Deborah. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's always good to have you. It's probably only the second time, but uh, we are ho- hoping for more um, in the future. Oh, me too. But uh, I believe there is a special occasion that brings you back among us. Well, yes, it's QED again soon, and we all look oh, yeah. forward to that every year. And what we do on Saturday nights is we present the Occam Awards. Mm-hmm. The The online voting for the Occam Awards is still going, and it'll close on uh, the 10th of September. Now, we get our shortlists together with the help of the public, so we really need you to go to skeptic.org.uk and vote for the people who have been working really hard for the last year or so doing skeptical activism writing blogs or producing events or producing podcasts we need to hear from you yeah and now what are the requirements for someone to be nominated well their their work should relate to the to the british scene they don't have to be british there are many times that we have given awards to people based um somewhere else in the world but as long as the british crowd kind of knows about them uh, and they, they just relate to them somehow. I'm also quite interested in how people kind of reach outside of the traditional channels. Um, some people really, really go out of their way to find new audiences for scepticism, to introduce people to a scientific way of thinking, and that's really great. And the most important thing of all is just quality. I mean, we've got so much good work in this community, people doing original, hard work, and, and it makes a difference, and that's what we want to reward. Mm, brilliant. So, so what are the different categories? There's the podcast category. And uh, last year, that was won by Susie Gage and um, Say Why to Drugs. Uh, There's the blog category. Last year, that was won by Brett Mary Hermes uh, and the Naturopathic Diaries. And there's the campaign event um, kind of a category. And last year, that went to the Good Thinking Society. And I think the people who who nominated them for the shortlists and the judges, I think, were all thinking uh, about the work they had done on homeopathy the year prior to that. Um, there's the editor's choice and the uh, present and ex-editors only get to choose that so that isn't open up for a public vote but this year we have a new category which I think people will enjoy it's the rusty razor mm-hmm. if you think somebody has done something so truly weird or moronic um, or is trying to sell alt-med cures for cancer or get in touch with the dead somebody who's done something really really silly 
nominate them for a rusty razor and we'll see if we if we can get them there i like that category it's a little bit similar to a really wrong segment that pontus does (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah yeah would you would you mind telling us a a little bit more about uh the selection process as well so that um, that's clear that these people doing that work need to be nominated on the website but what happens after that after that we find the most popular people it's basically it really is crowdsourced this is something where um if people out there who are, who do the voting there are enough votes then the four it's usually the four or five top people will get put forward and then i'll contact them and ask them to nominate their five favorite pieces of work over the last year so that they feel that their very best work is being considered and then that goes forward to the judges and we have lots of absolutely brilliant judges who have been working in science communication for many years um and i think they've always i i've been there at the meetings while everybody's been talking and they take it they take it really seriously and they they're quite passionate about it and they're also they've also been really impressed at times with the amount of work that people have put into things in the past it's a really nice event every year when we get together and we talk about this stuff. Yeah, I think it's a really good way or a great way to recognize somebody's work and uh, achievements in, in a year. And also after the um, awards are presented, the winners are then published in a skeptic magazine. Am I right in saying that? Yes, yes, we publish them. And the thing is, I hope very much as well that the people who have been shortlisted but who don't win i hope that they feel that they're being honored too um we we don't actually produce physical awards for everybody you know the shortlisters but the fact that you have got to the top of a list that is publicly nominated is really quite something and i hope that they feel that they've got more um exposure and and thanks for their work even even if they don't make it to the, um, to winning the award, if they're just shortlisted, oh. and that that is the category we fall in. Yeah, um, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and and we certainly feel v- v- very honoured. And uh, and our nomination to, for for the Ockham Awards is now part of our website, and so it's good, fantastic. Indeed. Yes, of course, I send a graphic out every year. Everyone who's yeah. entitled to one gets. <laughs> yeah, and we still haven't uh, taken it off, um, just just because we lo- we love bragging about it. It's, uh, oh, no, of course it's you still shouldn't. There. Take it off. Oh, it's still there on the website. So, <laughs> yeah. all right. And uh, the, the the awarding ceremony will take place at QED uh, on Saturday. Is it? Yes, a- it is. It's the Saturday, the fourteenth of October. Um, so everybody who's there, it's it's free to get in. If you're at QED, then coming to the ceremony is free. And uh, it is brilliantly compared by Richard Wiseman. He's been in since the beginning. When when I first came up with this idea, um, I remember there was a, a meeting. Richard Wiseman, uh, Chris French and I were discussing it. And Richard was was right in from the beginning and he's really really added to the atmosphere and to the the sort of um, festive element that we we have every every saturday evening when we've done this yeah he, yeah, he, he does that doesn't he he does he <laughs> certainly have yeah he it certainly w- have his style <laughs> it wouldn't be the same without his rabbit out of a of a napkin no no <laughs> and for those who don't know about the napkin trick you've got to come and find out for yourself oh absolutely is it a chicken by the way is it a chicken it's a chicken isn't it it's a chip- chicken and a napkin it's oh, you know oh, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's made <laughs> out of a napkin yeah. <laughs> um deborah before we say goodbye you did mention that it, it was you coming up with the idea when was that how how long has has this been going on 
The first one was in 2012, and I came up with the idea in 2011 when I started actually um, doing The Skeptic magazine when I became editor. And I just, I had been to QED, and I didn't know any of the guys at that point, but I just thought it was such a well-organised and fantastic event. And I thought, well, you know, if you're going to give an award out in the English-speaking sceptical world, and I, I know that people come from all over the world, but they, I guess they're English speakers if they go there and, and understand it, then um, then that is absolutely the place to do it because there's, it's the most professional, uh, inspirational, wonderful, organised thing every year, and I, I look forward to it very much, and I'm very glad to have been a part of sorting everything out on a Saturday night. Mm. Mm. Great. And could you mention the English-speaking wo uh, sceptical world? Um, yeah. Because uh, there is something that we are really looking forward to. First of all, meeting you at the European Skeptics Congress, where there I'm is going to be... Being there, yeah. Yeah, where there's going to be lots of people who whose uh, first language is not English. And uh, you, you'll give a talk. That That is another thing to look forward to. Yeah. What are you going to be on? It'll be translation, because uh, the, the talk that I'm doing is very specific Specifically, um, about a Polish, uh, a Polish kind of vampire ghost kind of thing. So, oh, exciting! Yeah, yeah it, it relates really specifically to the city we're in. So, um, I'm sure all of that stuff, the translation, everything was taken care of uh, very well at the last um, convention that I was at. So, I'm, I'm hoping that everybody will be able to enjoy this. Mm, I'm sure. Mm, great. Okay, so we need to um, get going with the show, and that means that we have to say goodbye for now. But not for long, because uh, we'll see you very, very soon. In we'll Rock see you very soon. Thanks very Th much for joining thanks us. Thanks for today. coming on. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. All right, this is exciting. And um, I'd like to remind our listeners that perhaps we are eligible to be nominated as well. So mm -hmm. if you think that we would be worth being awarded, please consider nominating us. You have 10 days to go. Yeah, we wouldn't mind at all. But, you know, if you want to nominate somebody else, that's fine too. Just go in and, and make sure that you, you nominate somebody for this great award. Um, and if you would like to nominate us or somebody else, <laughs> but hopefully not, <laughs> uh, then go to www.skeptic.org.uk and you can find a button for the Ockham Awards there and then you can nominate. Yeah. And there we and go. And there are so many good blogs, campaigns, podcasts out there. Indeed. Uh, yeah. So just and please each, make think, sure yeah, that you, you cast your vote. Yeah. And I think this year is becoming harder and harder because there's so many people and uh, organizations that are active in, in, in skeptical movements. So. Yeah, yeah. The skeptic, the skeptic movement has really grown recent in, in recent years. Yeah, and don't forget the the rusty uh, racer as well. That would be that's fun. Oh yeah, indeed. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the nomination is going to be for that category. Um, <laughs> I, I bet it's going to be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Bontus could come up with a, with a couple of ideas. Indeed. I will nominate the Pope, as I always do. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he gets your vote every time. Very nice of you. Well, and no matter, no matter which, which Pope we are talking about, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's the, the office itself. Any Pope. <laughs> Any <Okay>. Pope. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. For, uh, so instead of uh, talking to the Holy Spirit and... Uh, that kind of stuff. Let's um, listen to our interview with someone who's very familiar with uh, the idea of spirits and uh, strange phenomena mm -hmm. are happening mostly through our minds. 
And that is Sue Blackmore, whom we interviewed for this episode. So, shall we listen to that interview? Absolutely. We shall. Yeah, let's do that. On every other episode, we usually interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. In anticipation of the upcoming 17th European Skeptics Congress, we'll interview speakers of this exciting event as well and try to help our audience familiarize themselves with their work prior to this international convention. This week, we're talking to British psychologist Professor Susan Blackmore, who's a freelance writer and lecturer and an author of over 60 academic articles and 80 book contributions. Her books have been translated into more than 20 languages. She taught at the University of West of England in Bristol until 2001 and is now a visiting professor at the University of Plymouth. Her research interests include memes, evolutionary theory, consciousness and meditation. She is a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and in 1991 was awarded the PSYCOP Distinguished Skeptical Award. Her latest book has recently been released with the title Seeing Myself, The New Science of Out-of-Body Experiences. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, I have heard a couple of your talks and they were all amazing. And one of the, the things that, that caught my attention the most was that you started out believing in the paranormal. So oh, yeah. how did you turn into a skeptic? Evidence, evidence, evidence. Well, I didn't start out being such a believer. I mean, I, as, as a you know, at school, I read a couple of books about psychic phenomena, um, and I thought it was quite interesting. So I joined the Psychical Research Society when I got to Oxford as a student, and I don't think I would have, I terribly believed or disbelieved. I was just interested. But then I had this very dramatic out-of-body experience, and that's what made me turn completely into a believer. You know, it. It was so dramatic. I felt that I was completely, you know, out of my body. I could see the body and I could see the world down there and I could travel around and everything. And um, it was also vivid that I just thought this proves, I mean, this is stupid, I know, but I thought at the time this proves life after death. It proves telepathy and clairvoyance and psychokinesis and precognition and mm -hmm. the ability to communicate across space and time and ghosts and poltergeists. I mean, you name it. If it was possible for me to float around out my body, then all these things should be possible. And then all of science was wrong. So I got this great heroic idea. You know, I'm going to prove to the world that <laughs> the scientists are all close-minded <laughs> and wrong. And, you know, I know the truth. <laughs> so that's how I was for a few years. But your question was, what changed my mind? Initially, very slowly, everything I tried to test didn't work. And then I kept thinking, oh, just around the next corner is another thing that will work. If, you know, I couldn't find any evidence for clairvoyance, well, I'll do a telepathy experiment. If I can't find any telepathy, I'll do a precognition experiment, so on. Until I got down to, well, I know tarot cards work, because I was then reading my crystal ball and tarot cards and training as a witch and all sorts of stuff. Wow. And then I did experiments with tarot cards, which showed that you really need the person in front of you to use body language and so on for, for it to work. And they just came a point when the lack of evidence, if you like, accumulated to the point where I just thought, oh, God, maybe, maybe there's nothing in any of it. Maybe it's all rubbish. And that was quite a difficult thought to have. And um, it took me a while to adapt to that thought. And in the end, I did. 
And so that's how I became a skeptic, really. Was there any kind of uh, chemicals involved in your out of body experience? Oh, yes, yes. This was 1970. And um, I had a few. Well, I don't remember how much um, cannabis, but not much because I was feeling, I was extremely tired. I was having a wonderful okay. time my first term at Oxford, you know, not getting enough sleep. I was extremely tired and I'd agreed to go to a friend's room late in the evening and have a smoke, which I did. Um, and I was listening to music and I seemed to be going down a tunnel in the music. And, and I, you know, I can remember thinking, I don't want any more of this smoke because I'm already like, oh, I don't know where I am. So yes, it was involved. I think it was probably one of many things that contributed to me having this traumatic experience, but it's certainly not an entire explanation. I mean, this was 1970. We were smoking most evenings, um, as I've done most of my life, in fact. Um, I, and I, it's, it's very rare for uh, that drug to set off an out-of-body experience. I think you need a particular combination of the state of mind and things that happen in your brain to make it happen. So, yes, mm. yes, that was involved. I have tried just about every drug that's supposed to make out of body experience. I mean, <laughs> I, I've had, you know, uh, all, all the psychedelic, not all the psychedelics, but, you know, yeah, yeah, LSD yeah. and mescaline, psilocybin and so on. Um, but I particularly, I never had another out of body experience <laughs> induced by any of those, despite many other wonderful and amazing experiences. Ketamine is the one supposed to produce uh, the closest to out of body experiences. And for me, the, uh, I've only had it twice and it really didn't, it produced something like a kind of very blurry it just wasn't clear and real and, and realistic and vivid as the original one was so there is no magic drug that will just induce out-of-body experiences that's my conclusion from my own investigations and, and reading the research yeah so how long did, did it take for you or, or in terms of scientific research to come to the conclusion that what you had believed in was not real well it seems very short now looking back I finished my degree in 73. I did a, a year of um, a master's degree. And then I started my PhD in 1975, working on the paranormal. And at the beginning of that, I was really pretty convinced. It was mostly through my PhD work. And I, I finished my PhD in 1980. So it was really five years. But, but loads of experiments. I mean, I, I was teaching a course in parapsychology at Surrey University where I was doing my PhD. And it was one of these sort of optional courses, you know. And I was told at the beginning that, um, oh, probably I'd get about 20 students on this course um, on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, when they had sort of free courses. And um, in fact, 120 turned up the first week. And I was like, wow, what am I going to do? <laughs> and it was two hour sessions. So what I used to do is an hour of lecture and discussion and then an hour of doing experiments. So I was doing an experiment every week in term time for three years, I should think, which is a hell of a lot of data. And then I would be spending endless hours Remember when I'm talking about no computers, or at least there was a computer in London, and you could send up your data on punched cards and wait for the result to come back next week. But basically, it was handheld calculator doing t-tests and uh, correlations and stuff by hand. And every time you made a mistake, you had to start again. Wow. So it was, I mean, that was my life. I was completely obsessed with it. I was totally obsessed with proving to the world, you know. So it was a lot of work. I can't mm. quite answer the question how much, um, how much work but how long it was it was about five years really until yeah. the point and the real turning point well part of the turning point was in 1980 when i went to cambridge to investigate the work by carl Sargent, who was getting fantastic results in gansfeld and i discovered 
dreadful things going on wrong there. And I published this eventually. And the terrible thing is, this is really, really awful for science in general, but particularly for parapsychology, that Daryl Bam and others have published uh, meta-analyses of all the Gansfeld work, not explaining what happened when I went to visit um, Sergeant's lab, not publishing when I wrote in and said, look, if you do the reanalysis to show that his data are flawed for for randomization, which is a very kind way of putting the things I discovered going on wrong there, um, hmm. the, the whole effect disappears. So the ordinary public and scientists who read these articles are convinced that the Gansfeld has produced evidence for ESP. And in my opinion, it has not, simply because if you take out all of Sargent's work, you're not left with anything much at all. And you have to take it out. Yeah. Uh, for, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with, uh, the, with the Gansfeld effect, uh, would you mind uh, just briefly explaining it? Yeah, the Gansfeld is a, is a method for testing ESP. And, of course, most ESP experiments don't get very good results. And the idea of Gansfeld is that you would get the receiver of the, ES, of the telepathy pair to be in a very relaxed, receptive sort of state with good imagery and so on, um, while the sender might be looking at um, a picture or a video or something like that. So to get the receiver in this state... You put them into the Gansfeld, which means it's German for entire field or whole field or something like that. So you put um, them lying down very comfortably. You put uh, headphones on with white noise or seashore noises, something like that. And you put um, half ping pong balls over their eyes with cotton wool around so that they they just get a a Gansfeld, you know, a uniform field Um, and sometimes put red light on it and this produces a very nice relaxed state in which imagery flows very easily and usually they're in that state for about half an hour while the sender is looking at something or other mm-hmm. all the time they have to talk when they're in the Gansfeld and everything is recorded and notes made and when they come out of the Gansfeld they're shown let's say four or maybe six pictures or videos or whatever it was and they have to go through everything that they'd said and Im- imagined in that time and from that pick which one is correct And the um, claim is that they much more often than chance than one in four or one in six that chance would predict, they much more often pick the right one. And this is something I battled with a lot and I couldn't get it to work. And then I discovered that Carl Sargent was messing up his experiments big time. And so that's that's what the Gunsfeld is about. Mm. So was this one of the reasons why why you realized or how you realized that the, the effect you were looking for is actually not there? Yes. Around that time, I was pretty much become skeptical by by 1980. Anyway, it was certainly the worst one of the worst things that happened in my life to discover that um, that somebody you've admired is 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 behaving that way um, was horrible, and it was certainly very important in 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 pushing me to very extreme skepticism. Really, I mean, in the end, I have to say there could be telepathy or clairvoyance or precognition. They seem so unlikely for theoretical reasons they seem almost totally no evidence for them if you do what i've done and just go on and on and on and on investigating other people's experiments and um and 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 other claims and so on but still it could be possible so i have a small chink in the utter skepticism that you know if, if the evidence came i would change my mind back again and this is an important thing it is the absolute epitome of what it means to be a scientist 
that you should be willing to change your mind if the evidence suggests you're wrong in the way you're thinking. And Mm. I had the luck, if you like, or unluck or whatever, to have to change my mind big time. You know, it was pretty painful to uh, because I had become in in those years, you know, everyone knew me. Oh, oh, Sue's the tarot reader. She's the one who wears their hippie clothes and, you know, believes in all this stuff. That was who I was. And as I became more and more skeptical, that was not just a kind of academic uh, change of mind in a small way. It was my whole my whole life really was changed. Yeah, it was became part of your identity, right? Yes, my identity itself had to change yeah. dramatically <laughs> along with those yeah. beliefs because I have never been one to separate my scientific work from my the rest of my life. I mean, you know, that's it's all it's all mixed up. So yeah, it was a big change. But the point I'm making really is, having done that once and it be painful and difficult. I know I could do it and survive and come out the other end. And that means I know I can always do it again, which I think puts me in a good position because, you know, I'm not hanging on too tightly to what I believe now. I I have my beliefs, I have my opinions, but I know that I would change my mind if the evidence suggested I should. And, Mm. you know, some amazing psychic phenomenon came along or some near-death thing that comes along or some out-of-body experience thing that comes along that proves it. You know, I'd be like, wow, yeah, maybe it is true after all, and I'll go back to it. It hasn't happened in all these decades since then. Not yet, no. (laughs) Not yet. So so you've done done, uh, research also into sleep paralysis. Uh, First, if you could quickly describe what it is and then say how how common it is as a phenomenon and how well understood it is oh sleep paralysis anyone who is listening who has had it will know immediately even from the name sleep paralysis and people who haven't will think that's a bit weird um it is when you usually when you wake up it can be on when you're falling asleep but more often when you wake up you wake up you think you're wide awake you seem to be thinking normally you think you're awake but you can't move. Actually, we don't know whether people have their eyes open and are really looking around or whether they're dreaming that they've got their eyes open, but they certainly feel that they're absolutely awake Mm. and they can't move. The reason for this is when you're in dreaming sleep, in, in REM sleep, your muscles are paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams. I mean, whatever dreams are for, they, they seem to be important that the you know, you have all these stories going on, all these actions that you may be practicing for various reasons or memories that are being reorganized. And it would be pretty bad if you got like a sleepwalker, but, you know, it'd be worse if you jumped up and, and were acting everything out. So the muscles are chemically disconnected um, and paralyzed. And that should wear off. You should go out of REM sleep into another kind of ordinary sleep before you wake up and the paralysis will be gone. But sometimes the timing goes wrong and you're still paralyzed while you're at least partly awake and able to think. And that's what sleep paralysis is. But the problem is, if you wake up like that and you don't know, if you know what it is, most people can cope. But if you don't know what it is, it's really scary because you just think, my God, what's happened? I'm paralyzed. I'm dead or, you know, whatever it might, what thoughts you have. And the more you panic, the worse it is. And if you panic, you start trying to breathe and you can't control your breathing because it's on autopilot because you're asleep you know obviously when you're asleep your breathing is uh, automatically controlled so if you try and breathe deliberately you can't so you get this terrible feeling of pressure on your chest which makes it more frightening and that's where myths like the old hag and you know who comes in the night and sits on your chest come from and the incubus and succubus and nearly every culture has a sleep paralysis myth of some kind of creature that comes in the night and usually with sexual connotations because you've still got the sexual arousal from dreaming sleep which is quite normal so it's a peculiar thing 
if anyone out there is thinking, ah, I hate it, how can I get out of it? The two tips that I got from all the people that I talked to and who wrote me letters about it are, the best thing is just to go, yeah, great, I can turn this into an out-of-body experience. Imagine flying out my body and it'll be great. Yeah, super. <laughs> oh, the other thing is, I don't want to stop this. Just blink very hard a few times because your eyelids are not so paralyzed. Um, or try and move one finger only, just one tiny finger. If you try and move more, it just makes it worse. But it usually doesn't last very long more than a minute or so so it's nothing to worry about and loads of people have it it's difficult to to assess but most surveys it's somewhere around 30 or 40 percent of people have it once ever and a very very few people have the inherited form and they get it a lot and it's in the family Ooh. but that they're, they're very rare hmm. Oh, that must be very, very scary. I haven't experienced it, but I think it was at the last European Skeptics Congress where we had a talk, uh, and there was a video, a very vivid kind of, uh, of, of short video. That is called the Sleep Paralysis Project uh, that was talked about at the 16th European Skeptics Congress, and the, the, the speaker was Carla McKinnon, who, who talked about that and who showed us the movie, and it was a scary one, yeah. Mm. So I, I I do recommend it to everyone. It's the Sleep Paralysis Project, and it will be uh, included among the show notes. Mm. Do people who are affected by it know enough not to be scared, or or is it how how well understood is it by the public, by the general public? I really don't know, and I'm glad she's doing that. Um, my impression is much more than it used to be. I mean, when I go back all this time to when I started on all of this stuff, I mean, when I had my own out-of-body experience, the term near-death experience hadn't even been invented. That was in 1975. People didn't know anything about it. Um, sleep paralysis, when I was doing some research in about 1990, late 90s anyway, I was interested in a kind of trade-off between imagination and sort of the borders between reality and imagination. And I put out a survey question in various magazines for experiences that people thought were somewhere between reality and imagination. Got a few OBEs, a few telepathy experiments, but the vast majority were sleep paralysis. And that's what got me interested really in sleep paralysis along with the TV program I did about um, alien abductions, which are a version of of sleep paralysis and I went on radio programs and at that time it was hardly known at all and I got lots of letters where before email of course um lots of letters from people saying oh it was so wonderful hearing you speak on the radio that I know now that um you know what I what's happening to me is perfectly normal I was so afraid and now I know that other people have it too it's okay so that was you know 20 years ago I, I think and not everybody knows about it I still meet people who have it and are, and are scared but it's much more, it's much easier now. If it happens to you, um, you can easily find stuff online. So I think it's it's a lot better now uh, and, and a lot less frightening for people. All right. So for all the things you've done, there, there are even more. You, one of your most famous book, perhaps, is The, the Meme Machine. Yep. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and explain what, what it's about? Right. It's about memes. That is Richard Dawkins' idea that you remember his famous book in 1976, The Selfish Gene, oh, yeah. which kind of popularized the whole idea that evolution is not proceeding for the benefit of the species or even of the individual. Really, at base, it's all about competition between genes. And genes are a replicator. The whole kind of idea of, of the evolutionary algorithm is that if you ever have any information, which is called a replicator, which is copied and varied, and then only some of the variants are selected, then you must get evolution. You must get design appearing by this 
process of, I call it design by death, you know, the billions and billions of creatures that die mean that the few that survive get better and better designed for their, their niche that they're in. And Richard's point in this book was to say, genes just happen to be the, the, the main replicator on planet Earth, but there could be other replicators on other planets. In fact, there could be another replicator here on Earth. And he said, if you look around you, you will see in all around you. I mean, I'm looking around now at my desk at um, a keyboard and a diary and some books and a bottle of wine and some cards and two screens. And all of these things are here because they have succeeded in the competition to be copied by humans. So what Richard was saying was that Every time humans copy ideas, stories, songs, phrases, scientific ideas, financial institutions, I mean, all of these things, they are information copied with variation and selection. So they must evolve and they will evolve to fit better in the niche. And their niche is culture with human beings choosing things and, and rejecting other things. So I got gripped by this idea. I was incredibly ill back in 1995 I got chronic fatigue and I was in bed for most of a year and a student of mine had written an essay about memes and consciousness and that made me go back and read The Selfish Gene and then I read Darwin's Dangerous Idea which is Dan Dennett's book about evolution and I was so ill I could only read for about 10 minutes and then stare at the ceiling for hours <laughs> and that's what I did and by the time I was able to sit up again and type you know the whole book me machine was was in my head and really the idea is that all of this stuff in culture like podcasts and like all the things I'm saying now that goes out into the world there's heavy selection pressure because there's so many millions of podcasts people could listen to and radio programs and everything but a very few will get passed on and somebody will send the link and so on. And this is an evolutionary process operating exactly the same process as operates on genes, but using a totally different medium. So it's using humans as the selection mechanism and all these machinery and everything and so on. So that's the basic idea. And I wrote the Me Machine. It was published in 1999. And since then, of course, it's become far more relevant. I mean, we have the whole phenomenon of Internet memes which are just you know, the ones that get popular on the internet. Um, and we have a much more complex culture and much more integration across the world because of the technology. And now I'm thinking about maybe there's a third replicator, you know, all this, this information flying about in cyberspace, probably evolving out of our control. And it seems to me really important that we understand that all design in the universe comes from that evolutionary process. And when we think we are designing something, really what we're doing is mixing our old memes to make new ones and passing them on and allowing them to be selected. As I hope this podcast will be selected by more than three people to listen to. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for that. So what you have been talking about, is that what you came up for the term teams for when I, I, I believe it was uh, at uh, a 2008 TED conference that you gave a talk at. Yes. Uh, and the trouble is because I, the thing is I was trying to think of a name for this yeah. and I, I thought of all sorts of ideas and I ended up with team, T-E-M-E. But people got so confused they kept thinking I was talking about football or something. <laughs> so I have recently decided that dreams is better. TR meaning sort of like try implying three because it's the third replicator and to rhyme with memes. So I'm calling them teams now. And this is, of course, another mimetic competition. Will teams or teams win out? I hope teams does because then they won't get the confusion. Um, but it didn't. The, the reason I gave the TED lecture was because the year before, somebody wrote to me from NASA, who they published some books from NASA, and said, we're, right, we're doing a book about 
cultural evolution in the cosmos. Oh, right. And I thought, well, what on earth is cultural evolution in the cosmos? And they wanted me to write a chapter. And then I was walking one day with my daughter, a long, long, long walk, and a couple of days of walking. And I just kept thinking about this. And then all these ideas came. I thought, well, on any planet anywhere in the universe probably the same kind of things would have to happen. You would get at some point some chemical that would replicate itself and start to be copied with variation and selection, and then biology would happen. It wouldn't necessarily involve DNA, but it would be something, you know. And then if the same thing happened as happened here, where one species started to copy by imitation, start imitating songs and stories and words and gestures and all that stuff, then you would have a second replicator. Mm -hmm. And then what would happen then if those people produced machinery that was capable of copying, varying, and selected information, then you would have a third replicator. And it might go on even further, but it would only be when you got to the third replicator that you would get signals between, you'd be able to produce radio signals and other things that might allow you to be detected. So it all related to the Drake equation and the idea of why we don't ever hear from other, you know, intelligent uh, beings from, from other planets. And it led me to the idea that that perhaps it's so dangerous that every transition is dangerous. The transition from genes to memes and from memes to dreams and maybe dreams to anything else. It's dangerous each time. And maybe that's why we haven't heard from anybody. Huh. Or maybe they're just very bright and they keep silent because they think it's safer that way. I don't know. But it was those <laughs> ideas that then in the midst of all this, and I just decided to give up flying. It was, it was very a curious timing. It was the end of 2007. And I just decided that global warming was so serious that any respectable scientist ought to, you know, try and cut down their carbon footprint. And I decided I was not going to fly ever again. And then a few weeks later, I got invited to TED in Monterey, California. I mean, the TED, you know, the, the, the main one. <laughs> and um, I really tried to say, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. And then Dan Dennett rang me up and he said, you have to go, Sue. Uh, they'll make this podcast. And I didn't even know what a podcast was. And they'll make this podcast and loads of people will watch it and you really should go. And I then decided I would do one, one return flight a year from then on, which I did for five years. Um, and I went to TED and it was brilliant. And I'm so pleased I did. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And of course, you also traveled to the European Skeptics Congress in September in Rockslav, yes. which is one of the reasons we're talking to you today. So you will give a talk called Positive Skepticism, the new science of out-of-body experiences. Can you tell us a little bit what you are going to talk about? Not to give the whole thing away, of course. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, the reason I gave it that title is, is this. So often in my whole life being involved with the Society for Psychical Research and all the, the believing societies, and then with, the, with PSYCOP and um, Centre for Inquiry and all of these different things, there's a tendency for the sceptics, not all of them, but some of them, to be just debunking just oh that's rubbish oh yeah and very often when i've done lots of tv and radio and so on that's what they want me to do you know 100 people have seen the ghost and they want sue blackmore to come and say that you know um, whatever just rubbish it i don't want to rubbish things i want to understand the experiences that people have mm -hmm. we've talked about sleep paralysis well that's it's not completely understood but the basics are understood which is great what happens with out-of-body experiences is they're all um The, the, the distinction is so often black and white. It's either out-of-body or near-death experiences or tunnel experiences or whatever. Either they're really real and they really, really imply um, prove life after death and 
and you know heaven and all all the other things that are claimed or they're just they're just hallucinations just is always the word just hallucinations just dreams just you know forget them they're uninteresting they're boring they're you know that's what I think of as negative skepticism. It's depressing. It irritates me that that, it, that things are so often cast in this black and white way. And I dislike it intensely. So I've been thrilled by all the new science, which has happened over the last, well, 15 years, really, but a lot in the last three or four or five years to understand why and how out-of-body experiences happen. And they are can be life-changing dramatic experiences as mine was so for me positive skepticism means taking something like that that seems utterly mysterious that seems to be proof of some kind of paranormal or supernatural claims and then discover yes it really is life transforming and important and interesting and tells us something about the mysteries of, of consciousness and our own minds and ourselves and it isn't paranormal and it isn't supernatural so that's what i want to talk about very good and really looking forward to, to, to hearing that. Absolutely, yeah. No, so, I'm, I'm looking forward to going there. Can I tell you why I'm looking forward to going there? Apart from all course. you wonderful guys, of course. Um, my first husband, who sadly died some years ago, um, was Polish, um, Tomasz Trasenko. And I travelled to Poland with him and met lots of his relatives. And I tried to learn Polish, but it is so difficult um, that I can only speak a few words of Polish. But, of course, I have a bit of a soft spot for Poland. I went there before the uh, before the wall came down and it was really grim and depressing and i went there later and it was a lot better i'm sure you uh, know about such things uh from uh hungary too and and, and from yeah, the history yeah. Yeah. so for me to go back to poland again has a special meaning for me above and beyond just the pleasure of going to the skeptics conference <laughs> yeah that is, that is totally understandable yeah referring back to what you said before about why the, the media usually finds you to cover a certain side of uh, w w ways of looking at things how's your general relationship with the media i mean in terms of their reporting on on so-called paranormal events so do you sometimes get a bit agitated by by how they cover those those kind of experiences that people claim to have had i used to get really really upset and mad sometimes uh, about it the thing is there was a time for many years when i called myself rent a skeptic it would just be you know some television person would ring up and say oh we're doing a friday friday night uh, late night discussion show we've got 100 people who've had a near-death experience and we need balance uh, will you come and you know and in a way it was really fun for the first few years it was really fun i enjoyed it a lot it, it earned me a little bit of money i'm i'm only very rarely in my life actually had a job. Most of the time I've been freelance. And I enjoyed going off and doing these programs. And there'd be the morning shows, you know, the people sitting on the sofas interviewing me and that sort of thing. And I enjoyed it for a while. But as I explained, this whole kind of black and white, it's not so much the problem that it's black and white, it's that it's black and white emotionally and spiritually as well as technically. So mm -hmm. it would be people who believe in ESP, ghosts, life after death, whatever it might be. They are good, nice, spiritual people. The disbelievers are uh, materialist, reductionist, horrible, unspiritual scientists, you know? It, it was that <laughs> that got me down. And mostly it was fine, but there came a point, it was the near-death experience stuff that really got me down because that's the one that connects most with these sort of spiritual claims. And there was one TV program in the early 90s i think and i've written about it on my website um i was so upset that they rang me and said 
would you come and do this TV interview? It's going to be about near-death experience and, and consciousness, and we want you to talk about consciousness and the nature of mind and so on. And I said, look, I don't want to do this if you're going to be setting the program up in that way that everybody has always done. That is, we'll show you these wonderful evidence of wonderful experiences, then we'll show you the skeptical viewpoint, and we'll leave you, the viewer, to make up your mind. That sounds wonderful, and it absolutely isn't. Mm -hmm. It is, in, in the way that it was always done, totally and totally unfair, because the opposition always get the made out to be nasty. Anyway, I said all this, and, um, and she said, fine, fine, no, we want to know about consciousness. We did a long interview about consciousness, about quantum theories of consciousness, about all these things, and they snipped it all down to just select the bits where I said, no, I don't think that there's any life after death, and I don't think these experiences um, are proof of a mind beyond the brain. And, you know, I was cast again as the bad person against all these wonderful spiritual people who know that there's life beyond oh, yeah. and we'll all be happy for forever and ever and that really got me down and i refused to do any tv programs until very recently or radio or anything else so probably um 15 years or so i absolutely refused to do any but it was because of writing this new book and because of this wonderful new science that really explains how we how and why we have out-of-body experiences that i thought right i need to talk about it again and i will put up with this if they do it again and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but there are some very very good interviewers out there and i've done some recent um radio interviews who've been really good and i've been able to to talk about it in a in a reasonable way and i should say this the whole thing about it being spiritual versus unspiritual to me some kind of spirituality the sort of spirituality without religion a kind of secular spirituality if you like it's really helped by out-of-body experiences because i think in a way they they are about understanding that the self is something that the brain constructs yeah. there isn't a little me in there who can survive forever and go on into heaven that the sense of being myself is something that the brain does it's something that the brain constructs along with everybody else and in our shared language and everything else and so you begin to strip away this solidity of self and and, and loosen the, the the clinging of the self which is very much of course um key in, in buddhism um but in in some other aspects as well mm -hmm. so this is also able to take the uh, opposition away from, you know, believing is spiritual and, and good and disbelieving is not. No, disbelieving can also be a kind of spirituality in waking up to what we actually are, which is hmm. illusions constructed by brains. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. That's a very, so a very I, good yeah. and sobering thought that people should really take to heart. But some people don't like to be sober. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I say that seriously in a way, yeah. because I can understand why people hate it. You see, I love it. I, I was reading a book um, yesterday that was very kind of hardline in, in this way. I'm going, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting, uh, because to me it's exciting and thrilling to have some of the, 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 the rug drawn out from underneath me in, in terms of, of clinging onto the self, clinging onto the solidity of it. I, 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 I relish the realizations that come from from science and from psychology and from um, evolutionary theory and so on but i do understand why people find it scary if you are told that you you know spent your life thinking that you know if you've been brought up religious for example and you believe that you are an eternal spirit or soul put here by god for a purpose it's jolly scary to be told well 
actually the evidence isn't like that. Actually, you are an ephemeral illusion constructed by a brain here for no purpose at all, other than the fact that evolution is inevitable. Uh, Get used to it. Hmm. I mean, it's quite hard, isn't it? Yeah, it can be a hard message to your your whole worldview that is shaken by that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But so it should be. And to me, I mean, I've been meditating every day for decades and um, to me, this is all what, what meditation is about. Meditation in the sense of observing the self and its games and what it does and being uh, learning you know gradually gradually to not be trapped by it all mm-hmm. and so in that in that light these these sort of scientific view is is very welcome because it just points in the same direction mm-hmm. but still it's scary but then meditation and, and zen practice you know which the practice that i happen to do it, it's scary it means confronting really quite frightening truths Hmm. about the nature of us and and the universe. Hmm. You're obviously a very busy person and have looked into a number of different fields and and things. So uh, what are you working on at the moment? I'm almost collapsed from the fact that I've been working on three books at once for the last couple of years. And it really was, I mean, my husband's pretty like, don't, you know, what are you doing? Because it sort of happened by accident in a way that they all came together. I when the new science of out-of-body experiences was was getting going and I was so excited by I thought well I'd just do a little update to my Beyond the Body book which was published in 1982 and I started to do that but as soon as I got into the science of it there was so much I thought no I've got to write a new book and then I found a publisher and, and so that one started off. Meanwhile I'd been asked to do the uh, second edition of my very short introduction to consciousness which I really wanted to do because the very short introductions there. Oxford University Press series. Probably many people know them. There are hundreds of them now. They're lovely little books and they're they're cheap and you know people buy them and, and, and read them quite quickly, which is nice. So I wanted to do that and I did that. Um, and also at the same time, I was asked to do the third edition of my massive textbook on consciousness. And I knew I couldn't face it. And amazingly and wonderfully, my daughter said, oh, I can do it. So she's done most of the work, but obviously I've been helping and doing stuff. And we're at the final stages now. We've got to set up the website. We've got to do final corrections. Um, there's all sorts of small things to do. And I'm still doing them. And I was determined to, te- to finish all this by April and have a summer off, but I haven't. <laughs> so um, what am I working on now? Well, it's just that. And of course, I can't help thinking, don't tell my husband, I can't help thinking about a new book on genes, memes and dreams, but I'm not going to do it for a while. I need some... <laughs> Rest. <laughs> and my garden is full of weeds and I need to be, I've been out in the garden today um, planting out the cabbages for the winter and um, cutting down oh god knows what things grown while I've been sitting here working all the time so yeah that's that's a uh, uh, multiple busyness yes <laughs> and I got a granddaughter and two children and so you know I have other things I want to do as well I'm not just a complete workaholic well I kind of am but you know there's more to life than just um, just writing and thinking about the mysteries of the universe yeah, and, and uh, we really appreciate you you taking the time to to do this interview with us, uh, even though you you're so busy. And and we are really looking forward to meeting you at the European Skeptics Congress. But in the meantime, while we are about to to wrap up this interview, where can people find out more about your work in general? So if if someone's interested in 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 a bit more detail in in what you do. Uh, where can they find out about it? Two things. Um, my website, which has recently been revamped by somebody, and I haven't got the hang of the new system, so it, I haven't been updating it for a couple of weeks, but I will get back into that very soon. And uh, on the website is 
all my publications are there and lots of links to all sorts of other stuff. That's the real resource if you're serious about it. And if you look on the front page, there's a list of topics like alien abductions and near-death experiences or whatever. If you want to find out about one of those, that's the way to do it. And then there's my Facebook page, which my assistant looks after. Um, but I write stuff and then she um, puts it up and whatever. I'm, I'm not brilliant at that, but I'm getting better at it. And that has more like recent things like, um, you know, what podcast I will put this podcast when it when it goes live, I'll put a link to it there and say a little bit about how awful it was talking to you two and um, <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> how much I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in Poland. And, and I'll put, you know, I put up news things and what I'm doing on, on there uh, about once a week. So those are the two best ways to find out. Fantastic. That is amazing. All right. So again, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to do this interview with us. And um, it's really something that we look forward to to to, to meet you there uh, over in Poland at the European Skeptics Congress. So, Susan Blackmore, thank you very much. And thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. And I will see you there. Thank you very much. See you there. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That was refreshing. <laughs> it, it took us a while to organize this interview, but I'm really glad that we didn't give up. <laughs> no, she's such a lovely person to talk to. So full of energy, so so yeah. uh, enthusiastic, and you know when she gets going, uh, you know it's it's fantastic to to listen to her. And we're so looking forward to meeting her at the European Skeptics Congress, where she will give a talk about the topic that that we mentioned on the episode. And uh, for those who those of you who haven't heard her talk, please come along and do so. She's amazing. <laughs> Mm, she indeed. really is. Yeah. And uh, we will be there. Please come and say hello if if you're in Wroclaw in Poland. But let me tell you that uh, our about time tour with uh, Susan Gerbic, Mark Edward and Lubo Baburov who decided to join us for this for this trip across Europe. Um, that the, there are more and more events and more and more uh, stops along the way that we have planned. It's going to be an exciting party for you guys. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah! A lot of driving for me, <laughs> and uh, but uh, we plan to do some recording, some audio and video recording as well, um, doing some uh, check-ins from 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 different parts of Europe. We're gonna be traveling a lot in Germany, actually. We are invited to Göttingen, where there's going to be a bit of an event. Um, after that, we plan to uh, meet up with uh, someone from Guerrilla Skepticism Wikipedia in Frankfurt, where we will probably visit the Natural History Museum together. And then going down, we just just uh, uh, contacted Natalie Grams. Wow. And... We'll meet meet up with her as well in Heidelberg. Oh, fantastic! There is an extra and an added value to that that trip apart from actually meeting her in person. That she plans to take us to the pharmacy museum where there are original remedies made by Hahnemann himself. Oh, do they work? Wow. Well, they're still there, so apparently not. But uh, well, if you dilute them enough, I'm sure they work. <laughs> <laughs> After that, Marko Kovic and the and Skeptica Schweiz will host um, an event with us in Zurich in oh, Switzerland Marco, as well. Oh, Marko, he's been on the show as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, we're basically covering <laughs> covering all <laughs> all those places where where people are from whom we inter uh, whom we have interviewed so far. 
and then uh, we'll end up in Italy where um, we'll uh, join uh, all those skeptics from uh, from across the country um, gathering for Cheek Up Fest 2017, where Susan uh, will give a talk as well. And there's going to be another person, uh, James Randi, mm-hmm. whom we'll see at the European Skeptics Congress as well. Mm-hmm. And then we'll probably finish the, the tour together, the, the, that part that we do together in Hungary, where um, I'm organizing a, a talk for her as well. Oh, mm, e- even after Cheek Up, mm. you will yeah. tour a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. yeah we'll tour Great. together. Sounds, am- sounds amazing. You can, like, write memoirs after that yeah. oh yeah <laughs> and exactly. so dear listeners if you um have uh, any other ideas uh please check out we we have posted the the trips uh, schedule on several pages but i'll probably post it on the the website as well mm-hmm. um so if you have any more ideas if you want to have us for for a chat or just just meet up with us along the way please uh, get in touch yeah, and and please be aware that the About Time tour uh, with Mark Edward and, and and Susan Gerbic starts even before the European Skeptics oh, yeah. Congress. Oh yeah. So if you go on the fifteenth of September to Oslo, and it's the sixteenth or seventeenth September in Stockholm, eighteenth September in Copenhagen, and nineteenth of September in Malmo, you can meet them both as well. So yeah. so uh, be aware of what what we are posting, etc. We will, as these dates get confirmed, we will put them on our on our Facebook page, and uh, so you can know where it happens. Yeah, but unfortunately, it uh, it costs a lot of money to to do this trip. So I, I would also like to ask our listeners to contribute to to this trip if they if they can. Every pound counts. By my rough calculations, it's going to cost about two thousand pounds altogether. Mm-hmm. This trip. So. Obviously, the if nothing comes in, that uh, that means that we'll uh, we'll take care of it ourselves. But uh, a bit of help from our listeners or anyone else uh, would be very much appreciated. And uh, how you can do that is uh, that uh, I put together a crowdfunding page on Fundly, and uh, that's where you can donate to our cause. And uh, I'll post uh, the, the link to the show notes. And the show notes are available on the website. Our, yeah, and our website is theesp.eu. And also, you can always get in touch with us via tweeting. And our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. And emailing us, our email address is info at theesp.eu. As always, like us on Facebook if you haven't done it so uh, yet, because um, that's where we post most of our updates on um yes and spread the word mm-hmm. and while we're on the web page don't forget to check out the the events in europe page where we post uh, all the events that we are aware of in in europe whether it's skeptics in the pub or if it's about time tour with, with susan and, and mark uh, you will find all the information there and if you want to find more information there and you know of any kind of uh, events going on, please get in touch so that, that we know about it too. Yeah, so we can add it to the to the calendar. But that, I think, will wrap up the show. And uh, yeah, I'd like to thank both of you, Jelena and Pontus, for joining me today. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. It was great, guys, as always. Cannot wait to see you in person again. Ooh. Yeah. That would be so much fun. Excellent. Not long to go now. Yeah. yeah. Couple of weeks only. So until next week. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Okay, so, getting back on track. Yep.